Not long after the signal at 99.4 MHz, commonly known as KJZZ, went quiet, a new broadcast began. This one was different, and yet the same, and to the scientists gathered around their equipment to the confused homeowner wondering when this Mrs. McLavin show would end and the new jockstrap song would come on, everyone knew something had changed. This is what they heard. His name is Frank, and he'd pulled up to the radio transmitter tower to hoist the half-Nissan Maxima. No one had ordered him to do it, he tells me. It just looked like something that needed to be hoisted. I accept his offer of a lift without realizing that I have no destination in mind. We drive down the road for some time before I finally tell him that he can just drop me off at the bus station. He nods. He hadn't asked. A short while later, we pull up outside the depot, and I can see the dark husks of buses lurking around back. Out front, the usual characters are also lurking. Representatives from all the major cults are out, looking for converts, willing sacrifices, or simply waiting to be shuttled off to some other temple. The beaked masks of the three cormorant acolytes follow me as I step out of the truck. Have they been waiting for me to come back? I look at them. I look at the buses. I look at the man sitting in a small kiddie pool full of steaming, viscous orange fluid, happily and horribly boasting about how soft a lifetime of sauce bathing has made him to anyone that asks or makes eye contact. I slide back into the truck and close the door. Frank doesn't look surprised. I ask him where he's headed next. He says the dispatcher had him going out to Psycho's Ridge. Better get to it, I say. I don't look to see if the beaks of the cormorants follow us as we pull away. The darkest part of the night has passed, but it still weighs until dawn when we start down the private drive off the country highway. The packed dirt road goes straight through a rolling open field of grass hemmed by distant trees. In the pre-dawn light, it's a rolling, gray-blue, mercifully boatless ocean. Finally, at the crest of a hill, we reach a crumbled marble and iron gate that marks the edge of the tree line. Within the confines of the trees, the air is cool and damp, and the ground off the road seems more water than earth. The trees, too, are different. These are low and spindly, but still quite dense, with Spanish moss spreading between the limbs like ghosts and sheets. Ahead of us, in the middle of the road, our client appears. He's crammed into a too tight red velvet tuxedo and a top hat, looking more the part of a circus ringmaster than the kind of guy who would hire a hoist. His bombastic taste in clothing is tempered by the yellowing stains and grime that are visible just across the cuffs of his shirt front. Even at this distance and in this strange light, I can see the threadbare patches on his jacket. He stands there for a few moments, framed in Frank's headlights, until my companion finally asks him if he's looking for a hoist. The man nods, his movements making shadows race through the hanging moss. Frank asks where we should set up, and the man points down an unseen path to the left. Frank doesn't look pleased, but noses the truck around the corner anyway. What kind of asshole stands in the middle of the road like that, I ask. 
Frank grumbles that he's probably the kind of asshole who doesn't pay the people he hires. This makes sense to me. The path opens up to reveal a muddy landing abutting a stinking, shallow lake. Fog clings to the water's dull surface. Up on the shore, I can also make out an ancient house, half sunk into the lake with faint lights burning in all of its windows. Frank gets out and doesn't ask me to follow, but I don't like the idea of waiting useless in the cab. I get out and walk up next to Frank behind the truck. He looks up at me and nods. He wastes no time and starts explaining what we'll do and how we'll do it. He doesn't teach me exactly, but explains it simply and directly. I catch on fast, and I'm able to correctly maneuver the winch arm on my first try. Frank and I share a silent moment of mutual accomplishment, and then look around for whatever we're meant to be lifting. Behind us, someone clears his throat. It's dim, so I throw on the floodlights fitted to Frank's truck. White light illuminates our employer horribly, casting harsh, unearthly shadows on his face. He points with his stick, and my eyes follow it to a dark area I hadn't noticed before. A few steps from us is a wide pit about eight feet wide and filled with sopping mud. It must have been dug out recently because I don't think it would stay open for long this near to the water. But the focus of my attention is the shiny red coffin, mostly exposed but still wedged into the grasping mud. Frank turns quickly to the man and demands to know if this is on the level. He won't move corpses, he says, not without special orders from the head office. The man smiles, raises his hands, and waves them to indicate that our fears are unfounded. Frank turns back to me and curses. We exchange a glance and then get to work. Using my new skills, I manipulate the hoist arm over the pit and start to lower the chain. As I do so, I remember the man in the theater with his claw game and the toast that I didn't want to trust. I wish that he were here now. He'd probably get along great with this circus buffoon. Frank fixes the chain to the gaudy sarcophagus. Our employer moves to the side of the pit, hands behind his back. His round torso and thin spindly legs give him an arrogant, bird-like air. Frank tugs twice in the chain and, satisfied with his work, gives me a thumbs up. Gently, I ease the hoist motor on and engage the winch. The chain becomes gradually tighter until I can hear the mud sucking loudly in protest. But despite its protests, the coffin soon comes free with a mournful squelch. I raise it slowly, first an inch, then a few more, until it's finally clear of the pit. Pointing his stick again, the circus man indicates that I should place the coffin at his feet. I nod. A lot happens all at once. The hoist arm in place, I start to lower the coffin as gently as I raised it. The large knobs of the control levers vibrate violently in my hands, but they obey me fully. Out of the corner of my eye, I see Frank trudging out of the pit, wiping his hands on a rag. I think I see something move in the water. I think I feel something change in the air. I think I feel a rumble coming from somewhere besides the hoist truck. The circus man spreads his arms wide as if to receive his terrible delivery. The metal handle of his walking stick winks in the harsh blaze of the floodlights. I don't see the blinding explosion as a bolt of lightning drops from heaven, apparently striking the walking stick. I just see pink and purple after images across my eyes, blocking my vision each time I blink, and feel a rush of hot wind over my face. I quickly power down the truck and stumble around to find Frank, who is as bewildered as I am. Frank tries to say something to me, but I don't hear him. It's only then that I notice the angry thunder rolling back into distant echoes. The man is still standing there, unmoved but not unaffected. His stick has been blown in half, with an end of spiky splintered wood where there had once been a brass orb. His coat and shirt front are blackened and smoking, his jacket is burst in several places. His face shows horrified surprise and soot like a cartoon character. The sheared-off end of the hoist chain dangles in the air in front of him, and I follow its path to the smoking remains of the coffin. It's been smashed, as if by something far greater than the force of hitting soft mud. The ends are intact, but the wood and red finish are blown away near its center. 
For a moment, I am paralyzed at the thought that my sons might be inside. But instead of arms and legs pouring forth from the shattered void at the center of the coffin, I see... phones. Dozens, maybe a hundred, old landline phones. Most are plastic and yellowed with age. Others are strange shapes that recall the house of an elderly person. And still others are simply unrecognizable. Our employer's expression slowly turns to terror. He drops to his knees, hands pressed over his ears, silently screaming to the sky, but whatever din is torturing him is unheard to Frank and me. The man draws a deep breath and bellows, Hello? Hello? At the pile of unringing plastic. His hands dive forward, grabbing for the receivers which he mashes against his face. Hello? He screams into the phones that he lifts to his ear. Hello? I stare at him, scrabbling in the mud in the scene of the disaster. Still, I hear nothing, just his own desolate wails, and the sound of the tinkling bells as he clumsily digs through the coffin's remains, searching, I suppose, for the source of his torment. Frank and I watch for a moment and then hurry back to the truck, leaving the ringmaster to wail over his ruined grave. Frank quickly puts the truck into reverse, turns us around, and starts backing down the main road. In the rearview mirror, I can see the pale yellow line of dawn swell into orange sunrise. I turn to Frank. Is it always like this? I ask him. Frank says no. Sometimes we get paid, too. A few seconds later, we laugh. It pours out of me like stagnant lake water until I am drained. For now. This episode of Brian Weekly was written and performed by Max Sauce Acolyte Eddie and Kathy Shortsell the Brooklyn Owl Market Fisher with music from Michael Rambling Mansion Arthur. Sump pumps are an important part of every home. Is your crumbling Victorian mansion filled with the hollow husks of family members haunted by ghosts and surrounded by the rotting trappings of their fallen glory? Then maybe you need a sump pump from BFRA Homestyle Solutions. Sump pumps remove excess water from basements, and with all that other crap going on in your home, the last thing you need is more water hanging around. For more home care tips like these, be sure to rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter, at Brian Weekly.